Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you might have seen a theme in our hymns and in the readings. This is the last day, last Sunday before Lent starts. And so on this day in the church's calendar, in the lectionary, uh, we uh, go to the transfiguration, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop with his three disciples, Peter and the two brothers, James and John. And it is so stunning an event that it is part, it's a huge part of Peter's narrative from then on to those who come after, to those who have come to faith and to whom he is really ministering. We have two epistles of Peter, uh, First Peter and, and Second Peter, and our reading today is from Second Peter. Um, such is the effect of this. And then, of course, all of the other stories that we have about Peter, you know, his denial of Christ, and, uh, and then being there, uh, seeing the resurrected Lord, but being, seeing the crucifixion and then uh, encountering the risen Lord. So all of these are what we call first-hand testimony, eyewitness accounts. Those were actually held in much higher regard uh, in, the, in the days of uh, the first days of Christianity than was the written record. Um, we hold the written record in really high esteem, but in those days, eyewitness testimony had much more value than anything else that had been than was written down. Eyewitness testimony was always brought into, brought into the law courts. Well, we're seeing that again. Your vestry and and I went and uh, Terry went on a retreat, a vestry retreat with Kevin Martin uh, a week ago Saturday. And one of the things that he was saying is that uh, the millennials or the younger generation are not interested in hearing doctrinal truth. They might come to that later. But if you start at dogma and doctrinal truth, that doesn't relate to them. What relates to them is narrative. They want to know the story. And of course, Jesus knows that this is the way to get that into your hearts because he tells stories. He tells parables. And so Peter starts off this section we hear, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is such a huge event, this event of the transfiguration in the life of Peter that he will recount it again and again to those who come after. He's taken up the mountain and there before their eyes, this Jesus who just six days earlier in Caesarea Philippi has asked them, who do people say that I am? And they go through, well, some people are saying you're Elijah brought back, some people are saying you're this, some people are saying you're that. And, and he's saying, but who do you say that I am? That's where the rubber hits the road. Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, you've got to love Peter, you know, um, open mouth, insert foot. I mean, he's immediately there, um, don't we, some of us at certain times. But in this case, he's saying this amazing truth. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are Messiah. And Jesus says it is God that has told you this, that has given you this truth in your heart. And then Jesus goes on to say, but this Messiah is going to his death in Jerusalem. And immediately afterwards, Peter, of course, says, no, 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 far be it. You will never, you're Messiah. Messiah doesn't die. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. And so this has just taken place six days earlier. And now there are just the three of them, his closest disciples, up with him on the mountain. And before their eyes, Jesus is radiant in majesty. Absolutely glorious. The glory that he had before the world began and that is now revealed to them. The glory that will be his after the resurrection and ascension yet again. And that is what is revealed to them. So what Peter had acknowledged is now confirmed in this amazing image of Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And if there was any doubt left at all, He's chatting with Moses and Elijah. It's not, hello, how are you? Yes, we've never met. It's there in conversation. They know each other. Jesus knows Moses. He knows Elijah. They're talking about it. Don't you love that? They're just in conversation. And so, of course, this is the ultimate, well, not quite the ultimate, but another confirmation for Peter, James, and John, because Moses represents the law of Israel, and Elijah represents all of the prophets of Israel, the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets are represented here, speaking to Jesus. So what what Peter had spoken is confirmed to be true, and then... They hear the voice, the same voice that they heard at the Jordan. When Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, and he comes up and uh, the dove descends and the voice of the Lord says, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, if he is saying that his messiahship includes going to Jerusalem, being betrayed and hung on a cross to die, listen to him because he is messiah. And so this is just a huge part of the story of his own personal story that Peter tells over and again. And we get it in this wonderful epistle. It's important. He says, because I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, says Peter, to stir up by way of reminder 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things, so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Stories, our own personal stories, our eyewitness accounts are absolutely critical in the life of the community of faith because we all go through valleys. It's part of being human. We all come to times of suffering. It's part of being human. And so when our faith starts to falter, when there are times that so much is going on that we are hanging on by our very fingernails. We need the eyewitness testimony of others to increase our faith. To say, I was here and this is what the Lord did. To encourage, to walk with us on that journey. Peter knows that there will be persecutions there will be suffering, there will be death. But hold on to this, he says, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. It's why magnify the living Lord is so important for our life together. We have to be reminded over and over again, Peter Paul, Mary, Luke, all had personal eyewitness testimonies. Well, in the case of Luke, he interviewed probably Mary, amongst others, had their eyewitness testimony and then wrote it down. So we have these wonderful narratives, but we have our own. We have our own narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. He says in 1 Peter, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are you ready to give an account of the hope that is within you if you are asked. Because this generation is not going to want to know pure doctrine. It will come. If we say to them, well, Jesus died for you on a cross and your sins are forgiven you, and therefore you will be, if you accept Jesus, uh, your sins are forgiven and you will live with him in eternity, that's all well and good. But how does that affect you? How has that affected you? Are you able to give an account of the hope that is within you? Have you written out your spiritual autobiography? Can you give it in 10 minutes? Can you let somebody know why this Jesus is important to you? What he has done in your life? How you came to know him in your life? Now, when I was first asked to write my spiritual autobiography, I'd been a Christian for maybe a couple of months. I was 33. I was 33 when I came to the Lord. 
And I was really put out. I go, yeah, all of these people, they've been Christians forever. I'm going to have two paragraphs of that, maybe two sentences that I can write about my spiritual autobiography. I've just come to know the Lord. What are you asking me to do? This is really embarrassing. So I went away and... uh, and I didn't even know how to pray at that point in time. I just went away and I started to... And, the, and he said, just think of your life in stepping stones of your life. So I went back and, and I thought about these things. And uh, several hours later, I had 40 pages See, in my newness to Christianity, I thought that my story was starting then. And I realized that my story had started from my conception. My story with Christ had started right at my conception. And, uh, you know, I, can, I now know that it was the Lord who took me back. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I, uh, my, both of my parents had been baptized, but my father had fought in the war, and my mother lived in Liverpool, which is the center of shipbuilding in the UK during the war, and so was bombed. Uh, she had uh, houses explode either side of her whenever the uh, German bombers would come up. They'd go into an Anderson shelter in the garden. I can remember that Anderson shelter as a child when I went to visit my grandmother in Liverpool. And honestly, it, it provided no shelter at all. It was four concrete steps down into a hole in the garden with a corrugated roof over it and then some, um, some grass over it. You know, a bomb hits in there and it's gone. So that's what they lived through. And so, uh, so they didn't ever go to church. And when my grandmother asked that I be baptized, my mother said, um, that would be hypocritical since I don't believe in any of that stuff. So no, we're not having her baptized. And uh, so the only time they go into church, if there was a flower festival in one of the local churches, they did go then. And they did actually watch Songs of Praise on TV, which is a British show every Sunday uh, from all of the different. My, they both liked the music and everything. Um, the story of their coming to faith is a whole other story. But um, at that point in time, so I was not baptized, not taken to church as a youngster. And uh, in my elementary school, some of you have heard this, some of you have hadn't, so forgive me those of you who have heard this story before. But I'm elementary school and I'm put in a state school, normal, you know, co-educational school, not a private school, public school. And uh, I'm so unhappy. I'm really shy as a child, very, very shy, no self-confidence whatsoever. And when they would ask me to read out loud, all of these letters would just start jumping over the page at me. So I didn't know where anything was. I couldn't read out loud. I couldn't even determine what the words were to read. And that was something that you had to do in English schools back then. 
And so I would cry going to school. I would cry when I was picked up from school. I would cry in the evening at the thought of having to go to school the next morning. And I would cry again in the morning. And finally, my mom and dad took pity on me and said, okay, there are two private schools in town. One is a Roman Catholic uh, girls' convent, and the other one is a Church of England girls' school, both all-girls schools. Which do you want to go to? have no idea except in hindsight yes thank you lord the first one i chose was the roman catholic convent i didn't know anybody there didn't know anybody at either of them but i just maybe it was the uh, maybe it was the uniform i prefer i had no idea but um so i went there still really really shy And so I knew that playground was the worst time of day for me after lunch. So immediately after lunch, I would scoot into the chapel where I knew nobody else would be going and I could be by myself. Now, I'm not baptized. I have no idea about the story. I couldn't tell you uh, how many books in the Bible there were. I couldn't even tell you that there were two testaments in the Bible. I knew nothing. But there were stations of the cross all the way around the chapel, and I could count. And there was no story underneath there, but the wood carvings themselves told the story. And so every day I would walk and there was holy water in there and the smell of the wax candles and the smell of the flowers and statuary and I would walk those stations and by the time I got to the end, I'd be in tears. And I didn't know, I, I mean I knew the name, but I didn't know he'd done that for me, but I just would walk the stations And that was how he drew me first to him. That was the first. But I couldn't stay there. After two years at 11, since I wasn't baptized, I wasn't a Roman Catholic, I couldn't stay on for upper school. And so then I went to the Church of England school. All of my peers were baptized. And then they started to go to confirmation classes. And we were associated. It was St. Albans in uh, England. And it's the old Roman town of Verulamium. And St. Alban was the first British martyr. So there's this huge abbey church. And the school is associated with the abbey church. It's the longest nave of any abbey cathedral in the UK. And so we would go and sing there. The girls' school was associated. We sang with the boys' school anyway. And all of my friends are now able to go up and receive communion. And I can't. How am I going to get myself baptized? How am I going to get myself confirmed? And so I'd be sat in the pew with the deepest longing in my heart to be able to go up and receive communion. I can't tell you why, except God had placed that desire in my heart. And I didn't know how to do it. And so I left school went to work in Paris, kind of go and visit around in the different churches, you know, Notre Dame, Sacré-Cœur, or the Basilica churches, and, and just think, well, I don't know, how, how can I get myself baptized and confirmed? You know, back then it wasn't, you know, you just didn't think and, and didn't know. And um, so fast forward, Pat and I met in, in Madrid. We were uh, married. I wanted to be married in a church. 
not baptised, not confirmed. Not going to church. Living in Paris, not in the UK. Uh, But had a friend who knew a rector down in Cornwall who said, yeah, we can, you know, we can change things around a little bit so that we can marry you in the church. No Eucharist. Pat had been baptized, by the way. He was baptized and confirmed in the Episcopal Church up in uh, Massachusetts. I wanted to be married in the church, and I was able to do that through the grace of God. Do you see God's hand on all of the time? All of the time. That's where the story took me back to. You see, I thought it just started when I said yes, but this is where his hand had been all the way along the time. I wanted to be married in a church. We were married in a church. Fast forward, Georgie is three, Katerina is one, and we're living in Miami. And the Lord sends a friend to me in the neighborhood who has traveled and who has moved so many times that her way of getting centered in a place is going to the local Episcopal church. And so I didn't know Episcopalian from Presbyterian, from Baptist, from Roman Catholic. I knew nothing. I didn't know the Bible. I knew nothing. Nothing. Except a yearning. And she kept inviting me to go to church. And I remembered the chapel and I remembered the abbey and I remembered this yearning to be able to receive communion. And it all swelled back up in me again. I'm thinking, I certainly can't go into any church because I'm not baptized and I'm not confirmed and I haven't been in the church. And they're all going to think I'm a complete pagan. And what are you doing coming in here? But she kept inviting, gentle, Like Peter says, always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you, yet do it gently. And she gently would invite me. And finally, okay, I know enough that I know Easter has normally twice the number of people in the pews than a regular Sunday. And maybe they won't recognize that I'm a stranger. And maybe they won't even see me in the middle of that. And so I went along. And I tell you, it was like these huge arms just, just, held me, and I was home. So, I have filled out the pew card. I'd like three baptisms and one confirmation, please. (laughs) (laughs) So, the vicar calls up straight away. The rector, oh, hello, we've got three baptisms and one confirmation. Love to come and see you. That's a whole other story about his visit to the house. And it involves our son saying some words that he'd never said before. But anyway, another story. Uh, I thought for sure we were never going to be invited back to the church. But but, so we said the the date was set. It was Pentecost. And... uh, and, uh, and I went to the rector and I said, I, I, do we have any classes? No, 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 no. You went to a Church of England school. Yeah, yeah, I need any classes. You'll be fine. I go, well, no, I, I really would like some classes. Well, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to do? No, you'll be fine. Just follow it along in the prayer book. So we get there. Three baptisms, one confirmation, and Jimmy Duncan is the bishop, and he starts up, and we're at sixes and sevens. Nobody knows where they are in the prayer book, and we get about three sentences down. He says, I think we're going to start this all over again. We haven't had any preparation for this, have we, looking at the rector? And he's kind of a bit sheep-faced at this point in time. 
So I'm baptized and confirmed and I get to receive communion for the first time. What an amazing blessing that is. I still don't know anything. I know nothing. I've made these vows. I, I, I don't know anything. And, but I've, I've, you know, anybody, anybody's asked me to be on anything. I'm on the stewardship committee. I'm on the outreach committee. I'm on every single committee because anybody, anything anybody asked me, the answer was yes. And anything Pat, they asked Pat, the answer was no. Um, he was very good about boundaries. I was not, evidently. And then, uh, and then we had a new uh, woman priest, an associate priest who came up. And she was in charge of the Sunday school. And she put her arms around both of us. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I know what she's going to ask us. She's going to ask us if we're going to teach Sunday school. And I'm going to be able to say no this time. Because that absolutely petrifies me. And so she does. She says, will you teach preschool Sunday school? And I'm about to say no. And Pat says yes. And she walks away. And I'm going, are you serious? We don't even know. We know nothing. We know nothing. But isn't God gracious? See, I learned by having to teach preschoolers who couldn't have cared less, frankly. They just like to roll on the floor. But I got to learn the story through picture books at 33. I didn't have to go through all of the text, got the pictures and the stories so that I could teach the stories. That's what God does, isn't it? He's just so gracious that way. And see, then it's like, oh, I really enjoy doing this. I love to teach. This is because that was a gift God had given me and that I was pushing against that. That was the only thing I was going to say no to, but he knew. And he just revealed that more and more. And I'm still learning, but I'm still... And in, in I know things, but it's not here. And then my friend Carrie is just changed. She's joy-filled. There's no anxiety about her anymore. Um, she's just, she's, she's full of joy and peace. I said, what's happened? What's happened to you? So said, well, I've asked Jesus to be Lord of my life. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you just ask Jesus to come into your life. And I said, well, what classes do I need to take to do that? What hoops do I need to jump through to be able to do that, to have him be Lord of my life? She said, no, you just need to ask him to be Lord of your life. I said, it can't be that simple. I've got to do something. She said, no, really, just ask him. So I, sat, I went back home and I sat in what became my prayer chair and I said, Jesus, if you're really real, will you be Lord of my life? What a backhanded kind of invitation that is. But you know, he doesn't mind. He doesn't mind. He doesn't care what kind of way that invitation comes. He comes right in. And then he's really gentle. Because he, he makes himself Lord of your life slowly. And the last thing that I had to let go of was my finances. It took a long while for that one to be Jesus, be Lord of my life. But that was the pilgrimage that he brought me on. See, that's my personal story. 
There are so many other parts to that. Year after year, I add to that story because year after year, he reveals himself more and more to me. And so I can tell you the hope that is within me because that's the hope that I have within me, that he is real. And even with that kind of a backhanded invitation, he comes in. And heaven is rejoicing, and the trumpets are sounding, because one who was lost has been found and has entered into the kingdom of the Son. That's what Peter's talking about. We need to be able to say, what is the hope that is within us? Can you tell somebody who Jesus is to you, not in just plain doctrine? Yes, this is true. He died on the cross for your sins, but that's not going to mean anything unless it's changed you, unless he is inside of you, unless you have actually invited him in as the Lord of your life and given up, and he'll be gracious, and he'll be gentle, one part of your life after another. So I invite you during this season of Lent to go. You might think you've just got a sentence or two. But write out where God has been. Ask him to open the eyes of your heart to see every single instance of where his hand has been on your life from the very beginning. I would be really blessed to read it. And if you have some that you feel you can share, give them to joy for magnify the living Lord. Because when we walk through the valley, when we go through suffering, it's really important to hear somebody else's story. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.